coming up on This Week in Games, China adds further restrictions on minor playtime, Niantic launches a creator program, but is it too late? And Twitch loses another star as YouTube enters the streaming talent draft. Coming up, This Week in Games. It's that time of the week for your video game industry news rundown. I'm your host, Eric McConnell, and this week was a mixed bag of news all over the industry. You know, we're officially in the holiday seasons, quarterly earnings are all over, and now we're likely to see more random news than major investments or announcements, but there's still a lot out there, so let's kick it off. China makes their restrictions on youth playtime and spending in video games an official regulation. So many months ago, I covered an age restrictions related playtime and spending uh, that Tencent and NetEase reluctantly had to implement in their games, according to the government. Now it seems like this is more an official regulation for all games across China. So like in Tencent's League of Legends, um, users will be required to verify their identity and age against a police database. Minors will be restricted in both weekday and weekend playtime, as well as spending. And, you know, it's just, it's pretty funny to think that games are such a risk to overall Chinese culture, productivity, and really down the line GDP that the government is installing a nationwide limit on gameplay. So the conspiracy side of me thinks that the entire game license chokehold that happened about a year ago was the government kind of flexing their muscles before forcing NetEase and Tencent to install limitations on playtime. The government basically said, hey, look, you're never going to release another game unless you limit the amount of people who are playing League of Legends or whatever. Um, honestly, this is going to have a pretty detrimental effect because what I see is that this is going to push games in China to target audience instead of kids and teens because adults have little to no restrictions on playtime and spending. Why target teens? Why go through this whole trouble? Why piss off the government? Um you know, just go straight for adults. So it's like unfortunate because it's a double-edged sword. Kids and teens aren't going to be, you know, targeted for games. And then on the flip side, they're still going to play games. So they're just going to play more adult games. So it's kind of going to probably turn out worse in the end. Um, yeah, not good news. Um, I think anytime you try to take away things that people like to do and you try to put regulations around it, it pretty much swings the other way. So by telling kids, hey, you can play League of Legends one hour a day, whereas every other country can play unlimited hours a day, kids are just going to be forced to either like VPN into Korea or Japan or come up with fake IDs or use their parents' IDs or their older siblings' IDs to play the game. I don't, I, I likely don't see anyone who wants to play these games actually be affected by the age restrictions. It's more of another speed bump to getting what they want. All right, next up, Improbable teams up with Tencent Cloud to spread spatial OS to Chinese developers. So Tencent Cloud will be the official hardware and service provider for Chinese developers that utilize spatial OS in their games. Both Improbable and Tencent Cloud will also launch a developers program that offers qualified developers support services and up to $10 million in Tencent Cloud credits. It's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, um... Again, it's it's back to like Spatial OS, okay? So Spatial OS promises to offload a lot of the computation and like heavy physics or, you know, a lot of the complicated rendering onto cloud services so that, you know, a middleware PC can run games that wouldn't be possible even on today's highest-end 
rigs. But I really like Spatial OS as a concept, but right now I don't see much use outside of games that improbable funds or publishes themselves. There are great ideas for use cases all over their website, but again, nothing out in the wild. So I'm really wondering where the aha moment will be for people like me about Spatial OS. I really worry also that cloud gaming in general kind of like adds or solves a lot of the competitive advantages that Spatial OS offers. So all this stuff about, you know, having an MMO with a million players on there. Well, you you can do that in cloud gaming. And we know that Microsoft, Amazon, and Google are investing heavily into cloud gaming. We know that Sony and even EA are dipping their toes in the water of having a cloud gaming subscription service themselves. It, it again, it takes away even more from Spatial OS and the fact that no one's using Spatial OS to begin with. <laughs> I mean... It's just like things just don't look great for Improbable. So I'm curious to see where this goes, especially since Tencent has their own cloud gaming infrastructure. What is it called? Like Tencent Play or Tencent Go. Um, that's going to be available in China. It's already available live right now. So Spatial OS, you know, it's an uphill battle. Uh, we'll have to see. All right, next up, Niantic announces a creator program for AR development. In a story that's pretty much been building for a couple of years, Niantic makes more moves into becoming a publisher, investor, and platform holder with the creator program. Developers accepted into the creator program will have services, resources, and funds available to them, as well as a suite of Niantic tools. Unfortunately, off the heels of Niantic's poorly performing Harry Potter AR game, and the fact that no other AR game besides Pokemon Go has really impacted the industry. They are, the AR industry, in general, doesn't seem quite like the opportunity it did two years ago. And also, it's just like Niantic and the AR industry in general desperately need another hit game that doesn't have Japanese monsters as its thematic wrapper. Maybe it's the right time. Maybe it's the right environment. Maybe this is how you incubate those ideas. I mean, who knows? I, I just don't know. It, it's one of these things where it's like, how many games can support people running around? And, you know, Pokemon Go has a great for formula. We see, like, Ghostbusters, I think Jurassic Parks, lots of IPs have tried to implement that. And even Niantic, with their own Harry Potter game, tried, right? None of them remotely succeeded. So Pokemon has that. Now what else can you do, you know? Without, you know, instead of just walking around, checking into places, you know, battling randomly spawning monsters that sink across the players, like, what else can you do? And I think that's where Niantic and the AR industry in general need to go, especially AR and mobile. And then AR in the home, you know, that's still maybe years and years away. And even then, it's like AR in the home, outside of, like, cool board game ideas and some other stuff, like, what does that lead to, you know? Are people really going to accept that we don't have TVs and we put on AR goggles and you put the TV anywhere in your house? You know, it sounds great and looks great in like investor pitches and trailers and stuff. But again, in practice, I'm not seeing it. So yeah, AR is a tough one. AR, VR, all these mixed reality companies, they're, they're not doing well right now. Um, at least Niantic's willing to fund and, you know, incubate these ideas and we'll have to see what comes of it. All right, this next story, Washington Post targets EA and Activision execs for stock buyback sales, but why? So uh, this kind of like spread all over the place. Um, I think it's a pretty stupid article. So 
pointless story in my eyes. The Washington Post ran a story on the execs at Activision and EA using news of stock buybacks to dump millions of shares at sometimes kind of like a 15% increase. Basically, if you announce your company will perform a stock buyback, meaning you're going to use cash reserves to buy back stock from the public markets and kind of shrink your float that's out there on the public markets, the price of the shares see a generous bump during that time, generally. Execs use this bump to dump their shares at a higher level than before the announcement. So, for example, um, the CEO of Activision uh, dumped, you know, millions of shares. I think the article said somewhere around $180 million worth of shares at a 15% increase after stock buyback was announced. The problem with this story and everything in general is the way that it was done was completely legal under the SEC. That's the Security and Exchange Commission, the commission that oversees public equity sales and other stuff. As long as the buybacks were planned and announced without the input of the execs that dumped the stock. And guess what? The SEC doesn't exactly have the resources to dig through game exec communications to see if foul play was there. And there's not really it's not really a big sexy story. They'd rather be going after, you know, crappy hedge funds or something. So I don't know. I, it's not really that big of a story to me, you know, try to drum up that rich getting richer, uh, except for like people have to buy the stock at the increased price. So, again, no one's getting really screwed. And it, it's just general, you know, business. I don't know. I didn't see it. Um, you know, maybe you guys saw something else in that story. Next up, Supercell abandons Rush Wars after three months of a Canadian soft launch. So Supercell is somewhat known to do this, though rarely do game C tier one launches and closures like a Canadian market. So Rush Wars itself was kind of like a, a two-part game. On one part, you had an attacker and a defender, very similar. It, you know what, it's kind of like a combination of Boom Beach, Clash Royale, maybe a little bit of Clash of Clans. You set up, you had three um, target points on your base you set up like monsters and turrets and stuff to protect them. Other people attack them. The way they attack them was very similar to dropping cards in a game of Clash Royale. Um, instead of a vertical gameplay, it was a sideways gameplay. I don't know. Um, I assume that, yes, Rush Wars had underperforming metrics, but I think also, if even if they release it, there's a high potential for cannibalization and uh, Boom Beach, maybe Clash Royale, maybe... Uh, Clash of Clans. Why even cannibalize? Probably the best gameplay didn't look groundbreaking. Nothing really was groundbreaking. These ideas weren't new. And honestly, it just, it's starting to look like Supercell has a playbook, has a formula, has a game engine. And all they're doing is toiling around with more and more ideas with that. Probably need to branch out because you're just going to have more rush wars, you know. If all you can do is make a collectible card RPG game where you drop stuff, someone attacks, someone defends, maybe both attack and defend at the same time. And some kind of asynchronous or synchronous multiplayer like they've already done all these games so what else is there with this engine and that's what they need to solve because otherwise you're just going to have more rush wars more cannibalization more underperforming games because they're new and people are already playing clash royale so <laughs> you know solve it supercell all right next up another twitch superstar leaves the platform as jack quote courage quote, Dunlop signs exclusivity deal with YouTube. So not to be left out of the Twitch superstar draft, YouTube made a recent acquisition as they signed 100 Thieves Jack Dunlop. Dunlop has reported, you know, a little over 2 million Twitch followers. 
And now his YouTube following is slowly trickling up to that. I think GameIndustry.biz had it at 1.8 million at the time of the article. Um, still no response from Twitch, though. In terms of locking down talent to either contracts or providing some features that cause switching platforms to be detrimental to your brand. So they need to, like, really, I don't know, dig a trench around leaving Twitch or, you know, make it make it, make the platform switch harder. Because right now it's like, eh. You know, and you're not really doing anything that, you know, protects your brand and protects the talent from leaving. You're basically the talent uses your platform to prop themselves up and then sign sweet like 10 to 15 million dollar exclusivity contracts to go somewhere else. So it's up to Twitch to answer this and solve it. And I'm sure they have a couple ideas, so we'll probably see those in the future. All right, let's go to business news. Super Evil Megacorp raises 10 point million in a venture round. So... This is a weird one. Super Super Evil Megacorp is best known for the mobile MOBA Vainglory. So Vainglory, League of Legends was huge. Vainglory was kind of like, as far as I know, the first real attempt at a MOBA in the mobile space. They finished a post-Series D venture round of $10.5 million for a new project. So post-Series D means after series d they just had a venture round and what does venture round mean it basically from my point of view it means you don't want to say series e because it sounds bad so the fundraising interesting enough comes from a16z the legendary anderson horowitz but no news or information on the new project was announced along with the fundraising except that expected to be released in 2020 considering their series b was over 25 million and now they're effectively at a series e at 10 million might not be a good sign however well it's that's not a good sign and i also doubt that them fundraising was solely to get the strategic investor of a16z but likely a sign that Vainglory isn't paving the way for financing future games. So they dumped all this money in Vainglory. Vainglory like really attempted to have the esports scene. It never really panned out. Um, the game might not be making that much money, especially with League of Legends announcing a mobile version and uh, China basically having uh, Honor of Kings, having the mobile mobile market on lockdown over there. Nowhere for Vainglory to go. Um, I don't know. After two co-founders left earlier this year, I can't say I'm super bullish on Super Evil Megacorp. But Andreessen Horowitz isn't stupid. So clearly there's some substance to whatever they're pitching. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. You know, that's that's what all these stories come to. But if this was anyone, if it was like some pension fund or something, if this was like, you know, again, like Game Makers Fund or you know, one of these random funds that always pops up here, I'd say this is like bad news all over the place. However, A16Z isn't stupid. So there's something there. Vainglory wasn't quite a failure. Everybody knows about it, and it was a great first attempt at mobile MOBA games. So all the pieces are there. They likely have something cool, so we'll have to wait and see what it is. All right, this story is kind of a first. Um, Kiss Limited, an indie publisher, launches a bond to raise money. So this is an interesting story. A fairly unknown indie publisher foregoes fundraising debt or other financing rounds and options for investing and instead opts for a UK-type bond called an Innovative Finance ISA. Effectively, investors can put money into an account handled by their partner, Hamilton Rose Wealth Management, and investors will receive a return of 6.8% per year over five years, meaning I think it came out to be like 34% um, after five years. The first two... 20,000 pounds of that 6.8% per year 
they receive is tax-free. And KISS will be able to use the money for their own, you know, war chests and spending. They're a publisher. They just need money, right? Somewhat smart on KISS's part. They don't give up equity. And the ISA is an alternative to debt. And it seems like a lot of the cost and risk is put on the back burner, especially like as the years go on, because the 6.8% compounds. So that first year should be easy. And then by you, by the time you hit the fifth year, um, it's pretty rough, right? So they're, they're confident that they can hit that. Uh, however, there's a few missing parts. I don't know. The story on GameIndustry.biz doesn't mention a ceiling on the bond. So Kiss is a really small indie publisher. What happens if they suddenly raise 10, 20, and $50 million? Like, how do they spend it wisely and still guarantee interest on their bonds? That's a rough one. Like, if you're, if you're used to publishing, like, you know, $20,000 games, magically you have millions of dollars that you have to return. What do you do? Like, set up a Ponzi scheme? Like, what? Did, they can't start funding, like, AAA games because those take minimum three years to make. So that would be an interesting... Um, Interesting occurrence. Uh, this is probably the first instance of a game company fundraising through bonds I've ever covered on here either. So this is pretty interesting stuff. And I'm always like out the on the lookout for alternatives to financing. I think the old publisher model doesn't really work in today's society because it's or game industry because games as a service is wildly different. So unless your publisher is like committed to X years and that like you guys have everything on lockdown, it doesn't really make sense to do the publisher model anymore. And then just taking in investors is also risky because then you're giving up so much equity, you know, just to get your game off the ground. And really, you really just need a war chest for user acquisition and marketing. So whether that's through debt and now, you know, you have this ISA bond type that you can issue, it's pretty interesting. All right, next story. Um, pretty sad. <laughs> Abbey Games is terminating all employee contracts due to poor early access performance. So Godhood, Abbey Games' game, um, did not receive the amount of early access revenue needed to keep Abbey Games' staff employed. In a forum post in LinkedIn letter, let them know that they were no longer employed. I'll just say it's really disturbing that game studios are actually relying on something as shaky as early access to keep their doors open. Early access is literally one step beyond Kickstarter and both unpredictability and detrimental to your eventual launch sales. So all I'm going to say is managing directors, please don't do this in the future. Like it's not a good idea. Early access generally isn't even a good idea in any ways. I mean, it only makes sense for very specific games as service games and that's it. So I don't want to cover another one of these stories. All right. And we have two people news to round off this week. First up, Sony names Herman Holtz, managing director of Guerrilla Games, as a replacement for Shuhei Yoshida for head of Worldwide Studios. So <coughs> Holtz and Guerrilla Games are best known for the Killzone series, Horizon Zero Dawn, and recently supporting Death Stranding. Um, I don't know. The move really makes sense. Guerrilla Games is one of the marquee studios for Sony and has been a part of their, you know, global worldwide studios for over a decade. Um, clearly, Holtz has worked with all the heads of Sony over that long decade. Um, what other big names are there? You know, I guess you have Naughty Dog, but Naughty Dog doesn't seem like the type of company that their leaders really want to, like, abandon games for you know, managing giant companies and, I don't know, Insomniac maybe? Like, who else is there that's a big name that's been in there in the Sony Worldwide Studios for years? So 
probably the best choice there was. All right, in more Sony news, Geo Corsi, head of PlayStation second party games, departs after six years. Not much to the story. Corsi is planning to take some time off before venturing into his next game industry project. Second party publishing is pretty interesting. I think he started as third party publishing and moved into second party. So, congrats. You know, take the time off. That's what it's for. All right, I'm Eric McConnell. That's it for this week in games. Come back next week. We'll do it all over again. All right, take care. Bye.